Hello and welcome to Push Your Peak with me, Louise Minchin. Each week I'll be joined by some of the world's most incredible sports people who've achieved extraordinary things. I'll be finding out what it takes both physically and mentally to surpass what you think the human body is capable of and achieve your goals. As these people share their stories, I hope you take away the belief that you too can achieve your goals no matter how big or small. Today on the podcast, my guest is New Zealand All Blacks manager and mental skills coach Gilbert Inoka. He's been with the All Blacks for 21 years, helping the team to win back-to-back Rugby World Cups, one Laureus Award, 18 Bledisloe Cups, three Grand Slams, eight Tri-Nations and six Rugby Championships. But Gilbert came from very humble beginnings. The youngest of six brothers shuffled between children's homes. He left at 16 to study physical education at university in Canterbury. From an upbringing where he always felt like an outsider, Gilbert has helped develop the values of the All Blacks and build a team where each and every player is supported to reach their highest potential. Gilbert doesn't just apply his philosophy on the pitch. He's also a highly skilled practitioner who's worked for over 20 years to enhance the performance of top CEOs and businesses. In 2016, he was awarded an Officer of New Zealand Order of Merit for services to rugby and sports psychology. So Gilbert, first of all, I'm going to say good morning to you, but it's not morning to you, is it? It's evening to you. We meet at different ends of the globe, don't we? We do. I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand. Best place on earth. Even an earthquake couldn't deal with us. So I've just come back from having 10 days in Rarotonga. So had a good chance to get away and just rest a little bit. So no, lovely to be here. Evening for us here while it's morning for you. Before I came to this podcast, I was thinking, gosh, even the fact that you work with the All Blacks for the All Blacks is intimidating. Then I read out your title, All Black Manager, Leadership, Culture, etc. So explain us your job, because you clearly have done an exceptional job. This is my 22nd year, a privileged year in the role. I started back in 2000 with Wayne Smith, very, very good friend of mine, and I've had a, a whole range of different roles of being a sports psychologist, being mental skills coach, being team support, being assistant manager, and it's morphed into the role of all black manager leadership with sort of responsibility for the mental skills and performing under pressure piece. And that allows me to work in an area that I love and it's a specialist role that that allows me to deliver a content with a group of elite performers, which is both daunting and enlightening. So as I said, I pinch myself every day. And we have two managers in the All Black. Darren Shand looks after the business and operations. So he deals with the logistics and he's a champion in that role. And my role really is to look at the people. So creating systems and structures that enable the individuals in our particular team to function at their best when it matters most. Yeah, so you just mentioned in any kind of context, the All Blacks, and your reputation is fearsome. Do you sort of see that in your wake as you meet people and you travel with the team? You know, the, the All Black tradition is huge. The legacy is actually more intimidating than any opponent. And we're grounded in some pretty basic standards and values and 
One of those is, is gratitude, uh, is to be grateful for the fact that we have the opportunity to serve and be part of the legacy. As you go around the world, you meet lots of people who have witnessed uh, in awe of the legacy and the reputation that has been developed. So we try and keep our, our feet on the ground. We stay in touch with our people. When you perform well over a period of time, you're doing things to enhance your reputation. When you enhance your reputation, you begin to build a legacy. When you build a legacy, then people tend to want to know about it and to be connected and attached to it. Yeah, I I love that. The legacy is more intimidating than the opponent. Let's talk a little bit about your background, because I think that's important for people to know. You grew up actually in a children's home, didn't you? Separated from your five brothers. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, my background is is different. You know, my I've come back from Rarotonga. Inoka is a Rarotongan name. My father was Rarotongan. And he came out to New Zealand and met my mother. Had six children in nine years, so they were very busy. And then he headed back to the islands. I'm the youngest of the six. My mother had challenges and she wasn't able to look after us, so we spent time in an orphanage. I had the longest time in the orphanage. I was in there from the age of 18 months through to 12 years old. I was there with 30 other children. And I thought that the world was made up of normal people and me. And it wasn't until I got out of that orphanage at the age of 12 and went to live with my mother and then stepfather, who was an alcoholic. We had uh, real challenges in the, in the household. And I just sort of said, if I'm going to do anything with my life, I had to get out of and do it on my own. So the age of 16, I headed down to Christchurch and I found I was naturally good at sport, gravitated to volleyball, ended up training hard, becoming a representative of my country, New Zealand, toured the world for 10 years playing that. Then I got really interested in coaching because as you begin and finish, I wanted to spend more time in the sport, which is sport is what I loved. I met a guy named Wayne Smith, who was a current All Black at the time, and we started talking about performance and improving performance and it naturally took us to the area of the the mind, you know, the final frontier. And then I was teaching at Hillmorton High School when he walked through the door and he was selling sports equipment and I was teaching high school students and who would have thought 22 years later that I'd be this little wee boy in the orphanage who thought the world was made up of normal people and him would end up being the longest serving a representative of, of the All Blacks go figure. And I, I like to tell people that while sport is, is the rugby is a context, the lesson in that is that your past doesn't have to equal your future. If I allowed my past to equal my future, then I would have stopped a long time ago. So from any background and from any place, peak performance is attainable to those that continue to believe and do the work to achieve. That's sort of Gives you a bit of an insight to what shaped me. Don't get me wrong, there's still a wealth of insecurities that circle around that head. It's a constant battle within to, to manage the things that are byproducts of those sorts of upbringings. But you teach yourself to manage those and to be able to move in, in positive directions that can help people. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful and really inspiring story to come from, you know, a really tough, I mean, tough, difficult background. So you became interested in the mind and in psychology as well. So tell us, I mean, go figure, how do we even start with this? What do you, when you, when you get a new player, 
What's your kind of, what's your in? Where do you even start with them? What took me to the mind, I was coaching volleyball and I wanted my team to get better. And everything I read was about the physical stuff. A bit of work was being done in nutrition. But most of the problems that I was seeing with the people I was working with weren't physical. They were mental. They were psychological. They were having challenges to concentrate and having, you know, to be able to um, have belief in themselves to to be able to perform and do what they need to do to to come into it. So in the end, you, it took me to a place where I studied psychology. I toured the world, went to every conference that I could go to that looked at the mental skills and just got better at it. But when it comes to working with individuals and doing that, some things I've learned along the way, which I think are really important. One is the the therapist is more important than the therapy. So it's what you bring to any interaction with an individual. The relationship is at its centre. Before people tune into how much you know, they're working out how much you care. And no matter what knowledge I have, it's about establishing a connection with the individual. And then the ears become open. And, you know, in the early days, the mental area was considered an ugly duckling. If you needed people working on your head, then there's something wrong with you and you shouldn't be playing international sport. I worked hard at the relationship with the individual, and I still do to this day. The quality of your work and the uptake will be directly proportionate to the relationship you have with the person you're working with. And so understanding the social chemistry is huge. Yeah, there's so many nuggets to take away from that. So, I mean, and then also there's an individual psychology, isn't there? And then there's team psychology as well. And that's the thing that seems to be, you know, just even watch five minutes of the All Blacks and you see them, they move as one. Would that be a fair description? Yeah, together as one is a powerful mantra. You know, like when you are selected to become an All Black, it's not just about the person that you're playing alongside. You become part of every other man that has put that jersey on. And so every time you go to battle, you go to war that you take the spirit of those people with you. And the brotherhood, uh, which is forged through suffering together, through hard work, tough training, enables us to connect in a way through our breaths that engage people to the left, people to the right, people that have been there before and and, you know, with that colour black and the heart pounding strongly, you, you become a pretty immovable mass, really. The kapa opongo, which is the name of our new haka, literally means surging mass of black. And when, when we are on and we are together, that is what you see and, most importantly, what the opponent feels. Just even you talking about it, I can kind of feel it. You've mentioned in lots of different conversations the pressure, and there's pressure from all different directions, aren't there, including the legacy. So with people, your players, other people, pressure can make, can I suppose can turn you into a hero or a zero, can't it? Oh, yes. In my 22 years, you know, I've danced on a floor that has very different corners, pressure corners, where there's a period where that we thought to be great that you shouldn't experience any pressure. We lost the World Cup in 2007 because 2007, which was the worst result for the All Blacks in the history of All Black Rugby, and it was because we didn't embrace the pressure and we didn't understand it. Once you understand that uh, pressure is a privilege, 
and that great things happen when you enter that stage that has pressure, then you le- learn to lean into it and look forward to it and walk forwards towards the flame. Once you do that and you understand that it's an opportunity to experience something great, it's an opportunity to add to this wonderful legacy, then you will you will chase those moments that you have. And, and what we've learned is that when the pressure is at its highest, champions don't necessarily raise their game. They just deliver, deliver brilliant basics. So it's okay. not like becoming, becoming a superhuman or doing anything. It's just leaning in and understanding that for me to master this moment, to me to be the champion at this critical period, all I've got to do is to be able to deliver the basics brilliantly. And that means not dropping a catch, presumably. I mean, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Because I suppose pressure could make you do things you wouldn't normally do. A lot of people think under pressure and to make an impact that you've got to have razzmatazz and you've got to put together the miracle pass. But, you know, if I just run my line, if I just catch and pass and if I just stay square um, to use coaching language, then I'll create half chances for person left of me, right of me, behind me. And so if you've got a sea of people executing in that particular way, then you provide opportunities that look like you're, you're piercing the Great Wall of China. But it's not one person doing anything magnificently. It's just everybody doing their role, those micro tasks, those minute details with utter excellence. Oh, it's terrifying, literally, listening to you. What do you think people can learn just in their own, perhaps at work, at home? Also, of course, on this podcast particularly, we're talking about you know pushing our own peaks. So what can we learn from that, do you think? One of the biggest lessons we can learn from it is, is not to fear pressure. The goal of the mental game is to keep your emotions level. And what I've learned over the years, it's not so much teaching people's tips and tricks about you know how to stay composed and here's a tip for you to concentrate better um, here's something for you to improve your your belief what i've learned is there's a series of understandings that if embraced create connections that weave this cloak which becomes a sort of magic carpet in terms of what you're actually doing and what you can execute and and so in its simplicity uh, you know what we're aiming to do is to keep our emotions level that's the aim of the a mental game, when your emotions are level, then you will see things clearly in front of you. You'll be able to stay in the present moment. You'll see things clearly and you'll be able to act with conviction. The two things that elite performers have are commitment and conviction. And Commitment's about your drive and your energy and your ability to get up and keep going. And conviction is about your ability to commit in the moment to what is required. And so the magic occurs in that conviction piece. So to answer your question, I'll be talking about mm-hmm. you know, what are you doing to keep your emotions level? You've got a breathing structure that helps. How can you get out of your head so that you can allow yourself to stay clear so you can read? Where is your attention in those moments where you feel constricted or, or you feel tight? So it creates a different form of awareness for you to get a greater understanding. Very interesting. So when you were saying that, I could literally, because I have moments when I do endurance sport where, you know, definitely my emotions are getting the better of me. And I could see you move. And when you said feel tight, that is for me the kind of feeling. Is that a common thing? Yeah, like, you know, anxiety always starts from the outside and then it just it, it generates and creates and 
tension, you know, and the tension tightened you up. One of the things we always try and get our people to do is to move. Don't get stuck. You're not a tree. So what you want to be able to do quite often is have physical movement to enable yourself to to shift your attention because when it comes to performance, control of attention is crucial where, where it is. And most athletes and most individuals, I think even living in the world, sort of get stuck in the past and and they can't get out of that past moment and, and it and it keeps it makes them get stuck. And you know, getting stuck's like staring at a cemetery. You can't go anywhere. And so we just want techniques. For some people it'll be just getting up and physically moving. For other people it might be actually just count moving their fingers and counting counting to ten so that the attention goes out of the head to another part of their body and it frees them up in a moment that can help them get control of their attention. Interesting. I, I love what you said about your own magic carpet. I'm going, to, I'm going to think about my own magic carpet when I'm next in this kind of, in that sort of situation. Can I take you back? And I know it's painful because I've heard other members of the squad talk about 2007. So failure can be devastating, but it's very clear that you learnt, all of you actually, a lot from that. So what is failure important? Oh, huge. Failure is a crucial part of, the learning process, like people say you either win or you learn. You know, there's a phrase. I've learned that success is a lousy teacher because when you succeed all the time and you have a record like ours, you don't put the stethoscope of scrutiny over the beast or the organisation in the same way you do when you are successful. And so it needs a rigorous sort of discipline that you must apply to, to garnish the learning. So when you do lose and you have failure, it's a wonderful opportunity to to learn. I find that's when the ears are open. You know, normally when you win all the time, you subconsciously, your ears close and you think that everything you do is great. You might lose the, the, the match, but don't lose the lessons, which is an old adage that people say. But you know, I've learned over the years that the times where we do fail, and you know, for us in the All Blacks, it's not we fail quite often when we win on the scoreboard because we have a set of standard standards that are important for this team to live up to. And quite often you can look up at the scoreboard and have one and you will walk into our shed and the faces are full of gloom and despair because they haven't honored the legacy that demands a, a set a performance and a set of standards that is is worthy of of that all back legacy. Yeah. Just pick up that thing about I've never heard anybody, I don't think, describe failure as wonderful before. Mm. A wonderful opportunity. <laughs> I'm not saying no, I mean no. I mean I'm over I'm over exaggerating that, but go on. Yeah, well don't get me wrong, it still hurts. You don't like it, do you? <laughs> yeah, no, and but I mean the the shifting that mindset. We allow the athletes twenty four hours to dwell on both success and failure. And what is good is having a consistent structure that you come back to no matter what. So that how you feel and what you do is not totally consumed in judgment. Hey, let's not, let's be real because not all moments in time are equal. Some, some losses are more consequential than others and uh, not all moments in time are equal. So, you know, we want our people, people to identify those big moments and part of being a high-performing athlete just to deliver in those big moments. You know, we've had World Cups where you get to the knockout stage and I've walked to our walkover and 
with you know some of our big leaders and we look at each other and say to each other, well, there's three times in the next six days where everything we work for comes down to what happens in today. And boy, if you, if you can um, look that in the eye and know that you've done all the work, then it's terrific. Let's talk about that 24 hours. So you do, for that 24 hours after success or, a, success or a failure, you pretty much leave them to their own kind of thought processes, do you? Pretty well. Our model is very coach-driven, player-led, and the leaders are very important in our environment. So you have the coaches and leaders pretty well on the same level. While we're nice and even emotionally, we set up structures that we think are durable and we want people to enjoy the time in the shed after the game. So there's no media or anything like that. So you can chill and you can be yourself. And then, you know, recovery becomes really, really important. And everyone in the COVID world is, I laugh a little bit because you hear people saying, how are we going to cope with this uncertainty? Things are changing the most. Well, for 22 years, we don't know what's going to happen on a Sunday or Monday until we've actually dealt with the Saturday or the day of a test match. So, it set athletes up reasonably well for, you know, what is our normal, if you can think of that. And that's where structure becomes hugely important, that you don't wander or wallow in despair or savour the moments that are great. You just centre yourself and you get back into business and make sure that you're genuine about what you're doing. This podcast is brought to you by Wattbike. Push your performance this year with Wattbike. Whether you're training for a sportive or simply want to get fitter, the award-winning smart bike Wattbike Atom could be your perfect training partner. With integrated gear shifters, real ride feel and gold standard accuracy, this is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your indoor training. You can measure and track your cycling performance on the free Wattbike Hub app, and get real-time feedback on your pedaling technique too. Expertly crafted and designed in the UK, what bikes are tough enough to withstand elite athletes in training while beautiful enough to sit in your own home? Discover how what bike can help you reach your goals this year. Just head to whatbike.com. Tell us about, I mean, you, you've taught so many people lessons over the years. What are the biggest lessons you personally have learned, do you think, in your time there? There's no silver bullets or magic solutions. If you want to be great, the magic's in the work. In my world, high performers work hard and the elite performers work much harder, full stop. What does separate the greats from the not-so-greater is discipline. Discipline to not take shortcuts, especially when people aren't watching. And I, I do think there's a direct proportion of success, a success ratio around that. In our environment, all-black environment, there's two ways of doing things, the right way and again. And if you get that, then you enable yourself to give yourself a chance. Nothing's given, everything's earned. Earned, And in a world where you can access knowledge freely through Google and all that, you can't access great. You've got to roll your sleeves up and you've got to do the work really, really well. And I don't think there's one big secret. I think there's a hundreds of little things that weave together to create that cloak that you can wrap around yourself and become indestructible, you know, really, really tough to, to beat on any given day. You know, that's some of the things I think that, that come to mind. I'm literally taking notes on everything you say. 
But one of the <laughs> things that particularly struck me, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast myself again, everybody, because as you say, there's that little golden nuggets. I like that piece you said about it's what you do when no one's looking. So it's oh, not yeah. when the coach is there. Absolutely. And to me, it's a differentiator. I furnished a lot of these things back in the volleyball days where you'd go for a run. You know, how, how many times, you know, you, I, you just cannot stop one meter before you should finish. Why would you? Why, why would you do that when that may be the meter that makes a difference? Why cut a corner by even three inches when the degree of detail could be the difference between executing a basic so brilliantly when you're under pressure? And now if you can take that discipline and you can do that and then connect it to those moments where everything matters, I tell you, I'll give you the tip, there's a strong correlation. You're going to make me into a much better athlete because I cannot tell you that as you say all, that, all of that, I'm thinking of a swim set that I didn't do the last 200 metres. I'm thinking of the run that, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of that. And I'm sure I'm not one of your athletes, but I'm sure lots of people in this podcast will go, oh yeah, I know that feeling. And I think too, like what I've learned to, to sort of normalise this, you don't have to be the super human performer every day, all day. I've learned that, you know, and I was brought up thinking that to be great, I had to be at my best every day, but you don't. You only have to be at your best when your best is needed. And in a game, in an endurance event, anything like that, there'll be certain critical moments that you must win to be successful. And so your training needs to gear you up for that. But there are other times where the consequences aren't that great. You know, you and I can be playing tennis, it's one game all. I'm serving. I'm down a break 30-40. Now we get really good. You and I are in a in a much higher competition, and we're it's a knockout stage, and we're playing the best of three sets, and it's one set all, four games all, and I'm serving at 30-40 down. I'm down a break point. Well, the consequences yeah. of me losing that moment far outweigh what happened before me. And I think as athletes who are wanting to to push into their peaks, into those opportunities. If you can understand that and train yourself to be able to deliver in those moments, that becomes a very, very powerful tool. And it comes back to that point you made earlier about pressure, because that's the pressure point, isn't it? It is. It is. Let's talk a little bit about, because you talk so much about culture and values, and there won't be any kind of easy answer to this, but if you had to explain in one sentence all black culture, what would it be? We trumps me. Team is more important than the individual. It's side by side, not above and below. You know, so you get the sense that everyone's valued and everyone's valuable. And whether you've been there for 148 tests or you're having your debut, the expectations are that you will deliver what is required of an All Black. And that, I mean, would translate so brilliantly wouldn't it for anybody who plays in a team also as well it really strikes me from a kind of work point of view as well a business point of view oh without a doubt you've got to sort of overcome this culture of, of entitlement I, I, I tell a story I, I remember back in 2015 so I have three different mentors I, I work out areas that I want to strengthen and then I find people that can help me do that and I remember back in 2015 and I was at a cup of tea with um, one of my mentors and just as we're finishing our conversation, 
she said to me, girl, but how long have you been working with the All Blacks? And I said, I've been working with the All Blacks for 15 years and I almost felt myself stand upright and pat myself on the back and say, aren't you awesome? And she leant into me and she said, nice start. That phrase pretty well blew me away because the message in that was that sometimes when you've been there for a length of time, you think you have some sort of prerogative on the truth. You think that, oh, I've been here so long and you have this sense of entitlement. And the message I got that day was that unless I treated 2.15 as my first year and gave it all my best energy, then I wouldn't be honouring the legacy. And so it's the same in business. Business have people who, I've been here 10 years, what are you going to do for me? In our environment, it's hand up, not hand out. And in a lot of work environments, it's hand out and hand out. In our environment, environment teammates need to hold uh, you accountable for your actions, not your intentions. And so once you understand that, then that becomes a really powerful mantra for governing the way in which things are done around here. I get the feeling that you have some conversations that people might, if they didn't understand your culture, find awkward, uncomfortable conversations. If you can't have a uncomfortable conversation, or like we like to call at times a moving conversation, that's part of the, the mantra that you have. You know, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. So you come into a meeting late and you're not called on that, then you're perpetuating the standard which will actually eat away at the culture. You can sit around a board table, you can be in a coach's meeting, you can be in a leader's meeting, and when decisions are made and in the boardroom, there's rank. But when you get out and you're walking the floor and you're doing your work, no one's immune to the standards. If you're not calling others, your mates, on those standards, then you're letting the team down. And I think that's where a lot of teams struggle because they all say, oh, our group's so tight and we've got this awesome culture and it's better than anyone. But the flip side is that they don't call each other out and there's no accountability. And Mm. that creates discomfort and edge, which some people don't like. But it's a very, very necessary part of the puzzle. And you called it a moving conversation. What, because things are moving along? Or what did you mean by that? I want you to arrive at meetings on time. I want to move your behaviour. So I'm not... I, I'm believe not, me, I'd turn up on time if I was going to one of your meetings. <laughs> no, but there you go. You see, if you're on time, you're five minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So if you're on time, you're five minutes late. I love that. I mean, you know, I'm a newsreader, so I'm more than on time. <laughs> oh, look, that, oh, that's only an example, of course, but I mean... Yeah, but no, what, but it's what, a good yeah. example for other people listening, isn't it? Yeah. You know, what we're wanting people is to move. You can't stand still. If you if you stand still in whatever you're doing, then you stagnate. When you stagnate, you plateau. When you plateau, you get stuck. Mm. If I'm looking at you and I'm working with you, we're always saying, well, what's your next level? Where can I take you? And And then you quietly formulate a plan to nudge you in that direction. So, you know, that becomes important. Tell me about, because it's getting more and more physical, isn't it? In some ways, players, I think they're getting... Well, like, you know, it's much more sort of gym work than there used to be. That's changed a bit. Have you seen the change? And have you seen the change in mentality as well? People are getting stronger. You only got to look at the tennis and all that. And all athletes are playing longer now. And, the you know, the brutality is they're getting stronger and hitting harder. Now, I think the mental part of the game has is, is changed in people's understanding. When I started, it was considered the ugly duckling of the sports sciences, really. 
I know still when the COVID hit a lot of our teams in New Zealand, one of the first positions that took the first wave, the front line that were lost in the battle, all the all the mental skills provided, fighters followed by the nutritionists, and he was right. almost a, a pecking order. But I, I always tell people, you know, you go to the gym because you want to get physically stronger, or you run because you want to improve your endurance. So you do it three or four times a week. So if you want to get improve your mental game, if you want to get stronger mentally, wouldn't you apply the same philosophy there? When's the last time you closed the door and said, I'm spending 20 minutes on improving my ability to calm my emotions, to stay in the moment, to practice my reset structure for the moment, times when I inevitably get thrown off course. And there's more coaches now accepting that, embracing that, still some dinosaurs out there. That's the area that's changed the most, I think, is, is the acceptance of the discipline as a credible performance enhancer. It sounds like you're kind of ahead of your time very much so. I want to also ask you a little bit about what bike as well. Tell me about how important that is and what difference that makes to the team. It's off-feet training, isn't it? What bike is a part of our family. You know, we consider people like that partners, family. I don't like to use the word sponsors. I think mm-hmm. it, it's, it's too harsh and because they're more than that. I cuddled my what bike during the quarantine periods that I had because <laughs> was, <laughs> I got on that and I did some wonderful creative thinking. And when you think about it, what bikes appear in all our environments and the times where we slow people down. So when they're on, the, on them, they work hard. Other times they do things. So they think clearly. Great ideas are harnessed while people are sitting on them. The body's been conditioned in a way that's released out in the performance environment. So as a partner, they're huge for us and, and we value them sincerely. I can understand because I've done many, many, many miles indoors on my bike, but I've never imagined cuddling my war bike as yet. <laughs> and actually, because you can go and do, there are actual special what bike all black workouts. Have you done them? No, look, I'm, I'm past that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more sedentary in, in uh, my motives for hopping on the Watt bike. So I like to turn the body over and do a good oil and grease. And I have yeah. good conversations with colleagues in and around that. But I don't push myself like the, the others do to who get the massive gain. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think my last question to you really will be around, uh, so many people will take away a lot from what you've said so far, but... For all of us individuals, if we want to push ourselves, you know, we want to perhaps get close to the edges of what we think we're capable of. What would be your key message? I'd I'd get everybody to probably get an understanding around in today's world and where you want to get to, it's more important to have a compass than a map as a tool to navigate the world that we currently live in. You know, by doing that, I think... If you've got a compass, then you can point to a predetermined objective or a concrete objective. And because it's unpredictable and it's moving, the detailed map sort of just leads you deep into the woods and it just ties you up in knots. So I'd I'd sort of want to pull people back a little bit, get a clear picture of what the next level is, set the compass on that particular course, and then start the journey. And the goal may not be straight, but... You'll finish faster and you'll get there more efficiently than you would have if you'd trudged down a sort of a a pre-planned route. So don't be so rigid in your plans, but be real concrete in the objective you actually want. 
And then it's the agility to move. And so I'd give all my athletes a compass. I think that the past has been more about providing a detailed map. And then I'll just let them go and try and get them to get out of their own way and embrace, you know, what comes at them. That's a wonderful analogy. A compass, not a map. And finally, just really quickly, one last question. You've done so many things. You've, you know, you've seen so many successes. Is there one thing you're most proud of? Look, I pinch myself every day being in this all-black environment. If you said to me when I'd started, I'd end up having 22 years, I would have said, you've got, to, you've got to be kidding. The great performances, I think, speak for themselves. You know, like winning World Cups and getting ourselves out of holes is important. But I think the one thing that I think I'm most proud of will be being involved in the development of our new haka, Kapa Opango. It came at a time where our team struggled, was struggling with its own identity, trying to break free of the past, moving from a sort of European-based, some acknowledgement of Māori and some acceptance of the Pacifica and the multicultural nature that makes up our team. We spent a year working on just who we were to as All Blacks, Along with Derek Lardelli from the East Coast and in, in New Zealand, we we created Kapa Opango. It gave guys an engagement in the team and an identity, which I think is unheralded. And my hairs on the back of my neck still stand up every time I think of that. It's just a wonderful legacy because we understand that aspirations get us going, but being clear on who you are keeps you going. And Kapa Opango was really, really a crucial part of that identity piece. And I think the second thing that I'm really, really proud of is is hearing players voice what their involvement in the team has done for them. You know, hear a senior player say, I came into this team as a boy and it has made me a man. The sport itself will be there for a short period for these men and for the women on our management. But what it can do for the individuals and for society in a whole is massive and I take great pleasure in seeing movement in those dimensions because I know the world will be a better place if we have people who are better fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunties and mates. So the feats and the performances have, you know, I still strive, don't get me wrong, I'll I'll look under every rock to help us get to where we need to get to, but it's those other impacts that have had a a much more higher degree of pride for me. Oh, listen, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. And before you go, I'm just going to ask you quick fire questions. You don't have to think too much about them. So what's your guilty pleasure after a what bike session? Oh, uh, I like a couple of red wines. <gasps> Good choice. Uh, what song gets you pumped for a workout, if you have one? Uh, I don't listen to music when I work out because I like the freedom and the space and the emptiness that allows me to think creatively. What does your inner self scream at when you want to stop? Do you scream at anything or anyone? I'm not a screamer. I just lean into it and say, keep going. If, if you're hurting, it's good. Don't stop. Push another metre. Do another little extra. And you know that there will be 99% of the people on the planet that will not push through that. I might occasionally be one of those, as we've discovered. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? I'm not sure whether there's a best piece because the way I receive information is very context-driven. You know, sometimes you hear things, but you, you listen to things but don't hear them. And sometimes you watch things but don't see them. 
So I, I guess the best piece, or this is the thing I've learned the most through my journey, I think, is that rugby is what I do, but it's, it, it's not who I am. It doesn't define me. And I think as athletes journey, they get a lot of their identity through their success or failure in their sport. And I think once you grow the different identities, and I've done that myself, it helps absorb those times where there's rock, there's obstacles in your way. I'm interested, particularly from you, actually, who was your role model growing up? There's probably three. There was a a school teacher when I was in the orphanage in Martin Primary School back in the in the early days. And I still remember on a Friday, he used to say to me, Gilbert, come with me. And I thought I'd done something wrong. He'd take me down to the dairy, buy me an ice cream, and then just we'd walk back to school and go to class. So how he made me feel made me want to do things. And I've never forgotten that person. I became a teacher and there was a, a guy I taught with by the name of Ron Hare, living in Christchurch. And he was an inspiration to me. He had a way with um, teaching students and a way of connections, which was which was awesome. And I had a volleyball coach, actually, and a guy called Citrid Benicek. He coached the New Zealand team when I was a player. I consider him my best, best coach I've ever had and the worst coach I've ever had. Best because he pushed me to ever-increasing limits because he could see potential in me. Worst because... Once I got to a point where I could advance, he wanted to hold me down at a set level. So, but I, I just choose to remember the good parts and the good bits. In latter years, you know, my family, my wife, Michelle, has been a constant spirit, a strong spirit to guide. And, and her mother is probably, not many people can say that their mother-in-law is the most remarkable woman they've ever met. I can say that honestly about my mother-in-law. They've been a huge influence on me to, you know, to keep getting better and keep using talents to make other people better and the world better. Listen, it's been such a pleasure. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. There's been so much really incredible stuff there. And I genuinely am going to listen to this again. And I know my exact, all my, um, my nephews are going to be so made up that I've talked to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Uh, listen, absolute pleasure. Um, Gilbert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to Push Your Peak, a podcast for real athletes who don't know their limits. Next week, I'll be joined by England and Manchester City captain Steph Houghton to talk about the challenges and pressures of leading a squad in an international tournament and also her comeback from injury. You can find What Bike on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Twitter. To find out more, just head to whatbike.com. And if you like what you're hearing, I'd love it if you rate it, review it and follow. It really helps. This podcast was brought to you by Wattbike. The Wattbike Atom is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your training. No matter what your training or fitness goals are, the free Wattbike Hub app can get you there. Check out wattbike.com to push your performance edge.